This is R.J. Rashtuni, Easy Chair number 400. We've been at this for some years now, and it is amazing to me that some of you have been listening since number one, and you still uh, are enjoying it. Thank you. This evening, Douglas Murray, Mark Rashtuni, and I are with the Reverend Dennis Rowe of the Westminster Biblical Missions, of which he is the General Secretary. He's going to tell us more about the problems that confront world missions today. But I want to read something to you. It's not from any Christian publication. Sad fact is, not much of this sort of thing is reported by most Christian publications. This comes from the New Yorker magazine, December the 6th, 1993, page 87, and I quote, There was one in particular the soldiers talked about that evening. She is mentioned in the Tutela Legal Report as well. A girl on La Cruz whom they had raped many times during the course of the afternoon and through it all, while the other women of El Mazote had screamed and cried as if they had never had a man. This girl sang hymns, strange evangelical songs, and she had kept right on singing too, even after they had done what had to be done and shot her in the chest. She had lain there on La Cruz with the blood flowing from her chest and had kept on singing, a bit weaker than before, but still singing. And the soldiers, stupefied, had watched and pointed. Then they had grown tired of the game and shot her again. And she sang still her hymns, and their wonder began to turn to fear until finally they had unsheathed their machetes and hacked through her neck, and at last the singing had stopped. Well, those soldiers were haunted by that. I hope some Christians will be haunted by this and the many, many stories that are similar. It's time something woke us up. Either that, we wake up, or else God is going to deal with us, and his judgments will not be easy. Well, Dennis, what would you like to uh, deal with now? It reminded me of um, a story that's told to me by one of our missionaries, Reverend Alexander David, a fine man of God and uh, faithful servant for over 40 years in Pakistan as a Christian pastor. And uh, if you know anything about Pakistan, to be a Christian pastor for over 40 years, you know, you have to be a tremendous man of God. Of course, he would be embarrassed by me saying that, very humble man. He told me the story of a young girl who was converted, named, she had a Muslim name, and 
when she became a Christian, she wanted a Christian name, and so she took the name Esther. And he discipled her, baptized her, and her family, of course, threw her out. They were so embarrassed by her becoming a Christian. But that wasn't the end of it. After he had taken her in, given her a home in the village, someone crept in during the night and cut her throat and murdered her, probably one of her family members. And he told me that story, and uh, indeed very moving. And I had the opportunity on my last trip there this uh, past October to visit Esther Chapel, named in her honor, in the city of Siwal, formerly Montgomery, named after General Montgomery of um, note of World War II, the famous general. And it is uh, a reality every day for the Christians in Pakistan that they could face martyrdom, face death. I um, am, you know, still trying to deal with it coming back here, just the, the sharp contrast, how you can jump in an airplane and, and change worlds almost. Mm -hmm. But we do need to wake up. Uh, there needs to be a clarion call to our people really to get serious about their faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, what vehicle that will take, I don't know. My concern, uh, I think of where the Lord looked at the people and his comment was that they are like a people without a shepherd. Yes. I think there are just far too many false shepherds with Agreed. the flock. yes. And that's the main problem if you want to put it on anything in our own. And why that is and what needs to be done, um, we need obviously good shepherds, good pastors to uh, faithfully feed the flock as Jesus. As the prophet gave. said of the pastors, leaders, religious leaders of his day, my shepherds are all of them dumb dogs that cannot bark. <laughs> Well, this is a generation that is woefully ignorant. Uh, you know, the Gallup poll that was done, and they asked the people who were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the most common comment was the Beatles. <laughs> I mean, you know, if that's the case, I mean, it is any wonder that we cannot resist these false religions, false ideologies and philosophies mm -hmm. that are just coming in the neo-paganism that is uh, inundating our own culture. In my student days, when it was not as bad as it is now, one study showed that uh, the uh, college students who had been to Sunday school all their lives did not know any more Bible than those students who had never been to Sunday school. But in those days, of course, you did get some Bible in the public schools, which tells you how poor the quality of the Sunday school was. Now, we're more educated people than we've ever been, but we're really illiterate. Yes. We're not well read. Um, the Christians aren't reading. That's what am I burdens as a pastor is getting the congregations to read the people in the congregation, the man in the pew. 
one of the things we're doing in Pakistan to, to, with that work is with Pastor David. I believe these are the golden years for this man, having labored in a native Pakistani, pastored for over you know, 40 years. He's now translating uh, literature, good reformed literature, uh, into the Urdu language of Pakistan uh, for the people there. We've translated a workbook on the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, we've done uh, Confessing Christ by Calvin Knox Cummings, if you're familiar with that little booklet. We've taken the, the Elders Training Manual from the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America and translated that into Urdu. And then he has written his own book on um, which is to present Christ and Christianity to the Muslim. And uh, so I think that's a tremendous legacy that we can have. Yes. And when, you, when you're doing things like that, I mean, God can take the lampstand out of this nation and kind of use it to be a bit allegorical, but where you're mindful of uh, the light going out because mm -hmm. this people refuse. They stop up their ears. And it's as though in Kings where it says, I, God says, I put a, a lying spirit into the mouth of all these thy prophets. And that it very well can be, you know, the whole thing in Pakistan can turn around. I mean, in one sense, I, I, you, you see that people are so hungry for the Word of God. Well, we're uh, ministering with the seminary and the Christian school. Uh, our director there, Reverend Din, said, well, rather than going out and preaching all the churches, I'll just meet here on Sunday and see who comes. And he has now over 150 people from the community meeting on Sunday mornings. Now, of course, you look at the rest of Pakistan, you see the millions who are without Christ, certainly far more of a majority perhaps than here. But we need to wake up as a people and know that we do not have the grace of God here because we deserve it. That's contradictory to the very understanding mm -hmm. of that word grace. And we need to get, you know, we need to get serious about our faith, real serious. And that's not the mindset right now. I'm afraid in too many of the churches in this country that are evangelical, the concern is not Christ's kingdom, because he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But it's themselves. They're interested in uh, going to the right church where they can meet the right uh, man or woman right uh, place for their children uh, and having their psychological and other needs met. Well, that's the heart of the church growth movement today. Yes. It's, you know, the whole approach is how to meet people's needs. Yes. Whatever happened to the glory of God well, and the exaltation of Christ? One uh, couple very, very dear to our group went to one of the more prominent churches of this county when they first came here. It was ostensibly a good evangelical church. And when they were called on after their first visit to the church, they were uh, asked to uh, come to this and that group or fellowship in the church. 
and in, in response they said, what does your church believe? And the response immediately was, what do you want us to believe? Oh my. <laughs> oh my. Well, that's sadly indicative of, yes. of the climate today. Designer churches. Seeker churches, yes. too. That's another popular name. And, of course, they changed even from calling them churches. They're centers now. Mm -hmm. Many of them are such and such center. Mm -hmm. Where it doesn't, you don't want to use the word church because it's offensive. But yet we understand that word and it has a very clear meaning to it. It's God's elect, his called mm -hmm. out ones. I wanted to tell you also about the work in Hungary that uh, yes. Dr. Rapp, as I mentioned uh, once, who's one of the founding missionaries at Westminster Biblical Missions, and he was uh, the one who God used uh, marvelously in South Korea, and that work has matured to where they don't need his oversight so much, uh, had a burden for Central Europe. And when the uh, wall came down, so to say, uh, he immediately went there and went to Hungary and began investigating, you know, what are the needs there. And just to make a, a short story of it, in these six or seven years now, this has been going, I've made um, a couple of trips there myself as general secretary. Um, you know, the Lord has provided the way to begin a theological institute there. Now some might say, well, why would you do that? Because Hungary professes to have a reformed church. Mm -hmm. uh, 25% of the people are part of the Hungarian reformed church. One of the things we began noting that, well, those who called themselves reformed, they had no faith. They really did not have an understanding of what saving faith is in Jesus Christ. And then as we got to know the ministers and so forth, they were just inundated with theological liberalism. Mm -hmm. But they use a lot of traditional languages, so a lot of naive Christians are taken in by that. Yes. But yet when you talk to them, they're Bardian by and large. Yes. Which, you know, the bottom line is you can't really know God. Yes. And then the ecumenical movement that just dominates there, they'll have joint worship services with... Uh, the Roman Catholic people are the better people at their services, but they'll have Unitarians and uh, Orthodox and anybody else. Um, so we in said, well, we need to investigate this further, and we went to the schools, the theological seminaries, and just filled with this, filled with unbelievers mm -hmm. on the faculty and so forth. And I even made a trip there and then went to Holland and met with some people who had been working in Hungary to get some more background information. And then, of course, then they have women in the ministry. They have uh, the charismatic movement, which is probably one of the better movements, sadly, in the Hungarian Reformed Church, because at least it's a little more biblically oriented. So we said, well, what we need to do here is begin a theological school to help train, you know, godly young men, pastors, and give them a theological education to go back and serve in the Hungarian Reformed Church. But that they... they you know, the leaders there, they have a, a strange government. They have bishops. They have four mm, bishops yes. that break up Hungary, and then they have some other bishops in Romania and other areas, the old area of Transylvania. Um, they were began to be opposed to us.
pretty much from the beginning because one we're Presbyterian and we're not really in favor of the office of bishop but that's a small point comparatively we were willing to work with them we said we want to have a school we think we need one that's theologically orthodox and to help provide good pastors many of the the ministers in the Hungarian church have you know three four five six charges and they can't possibly minister to all the people um, so but then of course there's all the theological problems as well to have good ministers faithful ones and we tried working with the Hungarian Reformed Church but the bottom of line of it came that recently in this year where their synod well really not even the synod met the bishops met and basically have you know made us uh, persona non grata we don't exist any student going to our school cannot be in their ministry none of their ministers can have anything to do with us and so forth and they've been very heavy-handed about that and so um, now um, you know when the young men come to our school they know that we don't promise them much in the sense as far as what the Hungarian Reformed Church does because it's a state church still the ministers are paid to the state and so they're promised if they go there and go to their school they'll have an income and they'll have a livelihood whereas with us all we can promise them is that we'll try to give them the best theological education that we can but we can't promise them anything other than that but we think that's most important and encourage them to serve Christ that's very important because when uh the communist uh, regime uh, was replaced. There was a great deal of feeling in uh, international circles that the Hungarian reformed community had uh, kept the faith. And outwardly it seemed to be true. They maintained the old standards and all, but all reinterpreted in terms of Karl Barth. Exactly. And it's only been in the last year or two that throughout the Christian community, in this country at least, that knowledge of the tremendous change, the shift from the Reformed faith to Bartianism has become apparent. And uh, this has been uh, a very, very serious matter because what has happened is that all kinds of aid did go to the Hungarian Reformed community under the impression that it was still what it had been except for one or two uh, uh, leaders and uh, I was once told that uh, except for the one seminary all were still faithful. Well it has become apparent especially in the last year or two that this is far from the truth. Uh, Bardians are very good at concealing uh, their basic lack of faith and as a result they uh, found the West very ready to accept them at face value. It is not surprising therefore that uh, there are problems over there. The question will be how many of the people in the congregations are still knowledgeable enough about the Reformed faith? 
I'm afraid even on that it's very bad. Mm. Uh, most that we've met um, and the young men we have been involved with and helping and training would confess that the churches are filled with unbelievers and most of the roles the people aren't even active. In fact, one of the problems we ran into, which I think uh, demonstrates this, is that we uh, had uh, faithful pastors that we've tried to help and work with, and um, the people will come who never go to church, so to say, except for they have a child, oh, well, then they want the mm -hmm. child baptized, and the bishops have stepped in and made these ministers who are trying to be faithful baptize their children, even though... The people are evidently unbelievers. Mm -hmm. And we've tried to help in providing men to help the pastors and all that, and these bishops have stepped in and threatened the pastors if they take any of our students, uh, you know, they're going to they're gonna be out. Have uh, they begun to start new congregations at well, all? This, this is where we are right now. I came to my own synod here. Because I do want the blessing, you know, of Orthodox Christians here, the faithful church, and there certainly are a number of them. I've, I've gone to my own Senate, the Reformed Church in the U.S., and asked for our Foreign Missions Committee to uh, look in helping us begin a new um, denomination in Hungary. I've also appealed to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church uh, which one of our teachers over there that who goes back and forth is a minister here in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church uh, who has Hungarian background, Dr. Clinton Foraker, and then also um, some of the men in our board who are in the PCA. So I'm trying to get those churches here that are Orthodox and Reformed and Presbyterian to help us to, to this work to begin so that we're not just looking like some upstart, you know, group doing our own thing, independent group, because the Europeans are especially, you know, leery of that, and Americanism, if you will. There are a way of having a thousand splinter groups of this and that. But we want one that's consciously, um, you know, subscribing to the, uh, the Bible as the Word of God, and that the Reformed creeds are an expression of an inerrant word and uh, orthodoxy that must be maintained. But we're not just academic either. I want to I wanna say too that there's a real stress in our school, which by the way is named Karoli Gasper, which is like the John Wycliffe of Hungary, the Karoli Gasper Institute for Theology and Missions, that all of our students, not only are they involved in the academic studies, but we have them 10 hours a week working in, in the ministry. They're working among alcoholics, drug addicts, the people who are in, in most terrible conditions, you know, economically, which there are a lot in Hungary. It's, it's a poor country. And as well, helping pastors, not trying to supplant them, and so forth. And they are well received by the pastors, uh, by and large. But the problem we have is these bishops who, you know, it, it's hard for me not really to get angry. Who, is the, who are these men to stand in the place of God mm -hmm. and forbid these young men to, to preach the gospel and to help the church of Jesus Christ? It just really bothers me because I know for them to come to our school, as poor as they are anyhow, that most of our students are from Transylvania, 
and you know the history of Transylvania. Yes. It's where the Hungarians have been disenfranchised from Hungary proper, and they're in the area of Romania and so forth, right mm -hmm. up in the Ukraine. So to come into our school, they, I mean, they're poor enough, as they say, but they really forsake everything, every kind of security you could imagine. Why would they do that? Because they so love Christ and his word and want a thoroughly biblical education. And these are dedicated young. We have 30 students. may not seem like a lot to the world, but these young men are dedicated. We're now hoping to organize ministry in Romania. Our students are going into the Ukraine. They're into Bosnia and Herzegovina. They're in the Balkans. They're going all throughout that country now. And we're helping some of them of our graduates now that our school's been going long enough to even establish a ministry. And uh, hopefully this coming spring, I'm going to go over there and some representatives from the OPC and the PCA mm -hmm. and my denomination and ordain uh, some of these young men and to begin that work. So it's a real matter of concern and prayer. The whole uh, revolt against Ceausescu in Romania began in the Reformed community uh, headed by a prominent Reformed pastor, Bishop, and it gave to the Hungarian Reformed community a tremendous prestige internationally so that uh, it has made it more difficult for them to appreciate what is actually happening there. I know that uh, one or two of the leaders came to this country were widely received in uh, Reformed circles lauded as great Calvinist yes. leaders. Yeah. I know that uh, when I was at one church I was introduced to one such man who listened with apparent approval to everything I had to say. And yet I subsequently learned that uh, he didn't uh, have any regard for anything I had to say. Yeah, I know who you're speaking of. Mm -hmm. uh, very clearly, uh, we visited his office, and uh, he's just taken in all the money from the World Council yes. of Churches, and has literally, in relationship to us, forbade any of his people having anything to do with us. In particular, one pastor who is an evangelical—that's a good term over there, by the mm -hmm. way—that um, wanted one of our young students. He had taken him as an intern and said. You know, he's a fine young man, very helpful with the youth and the other congregations that I have. And uh, so said, when you graduate this year, you come and you can work with me. This particular bishop found out about that and stopped him cold. And he said, you will not take anybody I don't appoint. Mm -hmm. And he put in a man to, to be his assistant in this pastor. He's not even a believer. He's not even a believer. This is the kind of thing they're doing. And here we've had, you know, quote-unquote conservative reformed Christians here who have attacked us, who have um, published fraudulent letters against Dr. Rapp and myself regarding this, lauding the Hungarian Reformed Church as this great historically reformed church. I wish it were. You know, we're trying to help that it would reclaim you know, the real meaning of the Second Helvetic Confession, which is found in Scripture, mm -hmm. not in a Bardian, uh, you know, view of Scripture. Well, one of the problems that makes it difficult uh, for causes like yours is that 
when the doors were opened in Eastern Europe, a great many fly-by-night uh, people who claimed to be fundamentalists or good evangelicals mm -hmm. rushed in, made all kinds of promises to people there uh, with uh, no intention of keeping any of them, but they wanted to claim a tremendous field of opportunity and great works that they were accomplishing. This is being used by the Russians to bar all Christians from the West. Mm. It's making it difficult for outside groups to do anything. But the very, very grim fact that is beginning to come home to more and more people is that whether it's in uh, the old Soviet Empire or Central Europe, the churches that were persecuted learned nothing from their persecutions. They have come out of it too often the worse for it or else still holding to their ancient bigotry and prejudices. So I do believe it's going to take outside activities and efforts to reclaim those areas for Christ. Dennis, there is more I'm sure you want to tell us about Hungary, and I think it's uh, especially important because in the Central European countries, the Hungarian position is a very, very important one. Uh, Hungary, if uh, uh, you're not aware of the fact, represents racially a non-European group. They were, like the Finns, uh, a people from the Far East, Mongolian, right. a fierce, warlike people who spread death and terror wherever they went. They were a real threat to Europe for some time, and for a period it seemed as though they might uh, reach the Atlantic overwhelmed France and other countries. Well, when they were Christianized, they became a great Christian people. And they were very early an important stronghold for the Reformed faith. And the Reformed faith survived and prospered for a long time in Eastern Hungary. Western Hungary tends to be Catholic. Right. Uh, the Reformed faith uh, did not perish there as it did, for example, in Poland, where it was strong for a time. It also penetrated uh, into uh, the Ottoman Empire and uh, for a time a, a very great uh, patriarch, Cyril Lucaris, was a militant Calvinist. He was a generation after Calvin, or half a generation. And Cyril Lucaris uh, was three times imprisoned uh, by the Turks at the suggestion of the Jesuits. And when he got out, each time he continued his aggressive, reformed uh, effort to 
turned the Orthodox churches into Calvinistic centers. The fourth time, he, the Turks killed him. But it left throughout the Middle East and Central Europe uh, little pockets or memories of the Reformed faith. The one area where in Central Europe it truly survived and thrived was in Hungary. So it's very sad that uh, during the Marxist regime there, uh, the Bardians were able to capture the church with the state's approval. And I'm afraid that the, a lot of the good men and people were either suppressed or disappeared even mm -hmm. under the Marxist regime. Uh, one of the things you point out there though is the fact of the need of the help um, for you know someone from the outside so to say but the difficulty of that. Well the advantage we have is the fact that the nature of Westminster Biblical Missions work is to work with the indigenous people. So we have Hungarians who are either native to Romania or other parts of that world who can get in there much better than if, you know, the ugly American as we've even been called since going there. Um, and so it's really encouraging to see that, and especially the zeal of these young men uh, and their commitment. For example, uh, the assistant to Dr. Rapp is a young fellow named Zoke Imre. Zoke is a graduate of ours now, and he's just a competent young man, very faithful and zealous for the faith. And he was just married this summer. But the circumstance of where we are in the school is that there's no place for him, and he can't afford it. We can't pay him that much to rent a separate place. There's no place for his young bride. And here he is, a newlywed, and he's separated from his bride. She's living with their family until we can find a place. But, I mean, that just shows the dedication. And it's like that for all of them. I can just go on with the example and example. And, I, you know, I see that's what God is looking for. These are faithful young men. These are dedicated men who will give them themselves completely for the cause of Christ and his kingdom. And, in fact, interesting, you note about the eastern side of Hungary. That's where we are located in Mishkolts, which is sort of like the Cleveland or Detroit of of Hungary. It's a factory town up in the northeast. That's also where the bishop is probably the most friendly to us. He's more evangelical. And uh, so that's where we are located. And I, you mind if I share a need with everyone Surely, on the tape? Please. This uh, past year we've seen the building that we were renting and we've renovated a good portion of it. The fellow who owns it's just been raising the rent and raising the rent uh, to now where we're paying a thousand dollars a month which in Hungary is an exorbitant amount. So Dr. Rapp has found the property and we have put the down payment down on the property for a new facility, even better facility located in Mishkoltz not far from the train station which is advantageous to us. And uh, the thing is that in Hungary, because of the nature of things, still the bad influence of Marxism and socialism throughout the country, and generations that still have, ha they have to be trained, new ones, 
because even though it's changed governmentally, a lot of people don't want to work. They want the state to do everything. So inflation is so bad, and loans are like 20% interest. Mm. We didn't want to do that. Dr. Rapp found a man with this property that would sell it to us on a one-year note without the interest. Well, that's quite a, a mm -hmm. step of faith on our part. And we gave the down payment, but which means we have to make a $17,000 a month payment for the next 11 months. But to do that, I mean, it would just save us so much. And what is at stake here is having this facility to do this kind of work in Central Europe. So I would just appeal to any of the listeners who would want to help that... Uh, uh, please tell them. How to make out the check and where to send it? Well, to Westminster Biblical Missions. You can just put WBM Incorporated. And just note on the check and the place for a memo uh, for Hungary. Mm -hmm. As simple as that. And send it to Post Office Box 602, Post Office Box 602 in Carbondale, Pennsylvania, 18407. And. I hope you'll very soon write another article for the report and describe this need, among other things, and... Uh, Pakistan, a classroom, $5,000. Yes. Builds a classroom. Yes. Now, here's a classroom, and I can go off on 104 children with one teacher. Well, please plan to write about these needs. I'd be glad And to. also tell them where they can send their gifts. Well, I'd be glad to. Just just a note, uh, because of the Calcedon's uh, article already, we've had some response, and, uh, um, you know, the Lord opening doors there, so I want to thank you about that. And even new opportunities for work. We've made new contacts in India through Calcedon. Well, as you know, we have several missionary groups associated with Calcedon, and we don't feel that it hurts our cause, but rather improves it uh, for our people to support them. We feel that we will be blessed as we use our uh, publication to help all these causes. You know, that's a rare attitude today. It seems like everybody's so jealous for their own thing and I think that's sad because yes. it's for the kingdom of God. Well, we take a very great joy in being a part of these groups and they being a part of us. We have uh, no control over them, even though in one instance they're actually under our organization. But we allow them to have their own board and to uh, make all their own decisions. Uh, the only thing is that their uh, checks come through our auditor and our accountant uh, for the annual reckoning and IRS report. But uh, we think it's a privilege that we can help these groups. No, I do too. I mean, men like Peter Hammond in Sudan, who I had yes. the opportunity to meet for the first time. I'd heard about him for years. Tremendous man of God. Yes. Uh, Aaron Kayan, the work he's done in Zaire and his preaching, and now his son graduated from seminary and yes. getting ready to continue that work. Um, 
Aaron is on our payroll, and uh, probably Peter will be, although he does get something from us, uh, perhaps entirely so, before the year is over, the Lord willing. We uh, feel we've got to step into the gap when uh, other means fail. Yeah, I think that it's important for the church to understand, I think sometimes, especially for the Reformed Church, the Presbyterian churches, the importance of missions gets lost. Yes. It seems like we're almost uh, only thinking of struggling for our own existence, whereas, no, we live for the glory of God. And God's, it's His favor that we want. And I've often noted that... Um, in, in Baptist churches, they have a better view about this sometimes. I've heard uh, them say in a number of instances where they say that the foreign missions is just as part as this local mission starting out. And we're immediately from the beginning going to portion out so much for missions mm. here and there. And, uh, you know, the Lord sees that. And that's part of the Great Commission. Well people forget that the church began as a missionary organization. Go ye into all the world was the commission the church had. The book of Acts tells us how they set about to do that. And now we've forgotten that. It's building up a, an organization, creating a hierarchy and a bureaucracy. Now that's a whole other avenue that we can talk about. What is the cost for putting a missionary on the field? Yes. I got involved in missions a good number of years ago, and in the mid-80s found out, you know, we were giving to one missionary, and there can be circumstances. I'm not meaning to criticize every, mm -hmm. you know, man on the field, that's for sure. But one missionary costing over 40-some-odd thousand dollars a year back in the middle-80s. And then when I looked, well, what was being done? And it was really not much. Now, if you were running a business that way and you were hiring somebody to produce for you, you know, you would expect something produced. Now, I, I know with the church we're, we're, we're loath to take any of Madison Avenue approach or any business approach to anything. <laughs> Come on, give me a break. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's not good biblical principle. Jesus used... A parable of five talents given to a man, two talents given to a man, and one man was given one talent. Mm -hmm. The man who was given the least hid the most, really. The guy who was given the most did the most with it, even. And he was greatly blessed by it. He yes. took those five talents and he went out and produced it. You know, more with it. He, he was wise in doing that. And we need to recognize, you know, what are we doing with the money that we are spending on missions? Mm -hmm. One of the things I can happily say about Westminster Biblical Missions and what we're doing is that, you know, there's not a great overhead. There's not money being wasted on some massive bureaucracy. You know, my office costs maybe four or $500 to run a month. I am the bureaucracy, if you will, <laughs> you know, for Westminster Biblical Missions. I, you know... I think that's wonderful that I can see, you know, money that's given go to that. And if anybody wants to help with the general fund, they can do that. But each missionary and each mission field has its fund, and it goes to that field. 
And we don't want some, you know, big bureaucracy getting involved in that. We do not tax our missionaries. We don't tax on what they, what they, t what they get. If you want to give to a certain project or something that they're doing, you can do that directly. Well, today people feel you can't begin anything unless you build up a bureaucracy, first of all. I know that people come here uh, to see Calcedon. Well, where is it? <laughs> we have a school building. We have a small office building, very tiny, where the girls are almost in one another's way. And we have two small warehouses to house the uh, Ross House books and the Calcedon uh, journals and that sort of thing. But we don't have an organization. We have two women running the office. That's it. And uh, I believe yesterday and today the mail was better than a hundred letters uh, with a great many uh, things to be done to meet uh, what each letter required books being ordered, or journals, or back reports, or a gift to be acknowledged, and so on and on. Uh, we're I can very relate to that as a general secretary. Yes. <laughs> we're very, very much understaffed and uh, short of space, but we've given the priority to what's happening out there. Well, that's the thing. Your, your great burden is to see, if you will, the productivity of your ministry. Yes. Of what you're able to accomplish for Christ. You see, and not self-serving. What you're able to accomplish for yourself. And uh, I've heard of some mis mission agencies where it's 50% mm -hmm. of what the, the given missionary raises is going for you know, the overhead uh, the, to someone else, not to the missionary's care and well-being. And I just think that that's way out of proportion. Uh, the Attorney General of California released a report today that the charitable groups soliciting funds in the state of California actually give to the charities 37%, 30%. slightly less than 37% of all that is received. Did you hear the same one where there's some agency they were reporting on that some a really large one that the first eleven million dollars that it raised went to the agency mm -hmm. and then when they made over that then they gave to the charitable organization eleven million dollars and then the report was is that when they got the eleven million they quit raising it for the organization <laughs> yeah, uh, that is sad well, we need more grassroots concern and grassroots activity. And certainly, your organization represents uh, a basic uh, honesty of approach. Well, that's one of the things where I can be so encouraged uh, by being involved in it. You know, I'm not uh, in it for the money, and it's not saying it just to sell myself, but because I see the quality of our missionaries and the work they're doing. And I can say that, and that's what gives me great joy, 
And I'm humbled that God, you know, allows me to be a part of it. I know what our missionaries are doing. I know how some of them give of their own substance. Our first general secretary, you know, who labored for 17 years and, you know, over 17 years maybe uh, uh, received a salary of $10,000 in 17 years of labor. If that, I, I doubt if it was that much. You know, and it's just incredible, the dedication of these men. Yes. Well, one of the things that uh, drew me to you before I ever met you was to learn that uh, as chairman of the Committee on Missions of your church denomination, you had a knack for troubling the conscience of a lot of people. And that's wonderful. You don't always make a lot of friends doing that, you know. <laughs> no, but yeah. the Lord blesses you for that. Well, I thank you very much. Well, we need our conscience troubled. Um, God does that to us. Those that are his children, he chastens. And we need chastening in the church today. Yes. But, uh, take away our complacency and to renew our zeal for Christ and his kingdom and promoting his glory throughout the world. I often think of John Welch, who is John Knox's son-in-law, and the great work he did and the, uh, the zeal with which he did it. His wife, Knox's daughter, would wake up at night and often find that he was not in bed and she would go to his study and find him there with, wrapped up in a shawl, kneeling on the floor, praying agonizingly, mm -hmm. Lord, give me Scotland or I die. It's no wonder that King James said that he had to be in exile because he said, my throne will not be safe if that man is in Scotland. Yes, you know, that's one of the things when people write us, you, you, you bring up the whole matter of prayer. I don't just say it, um, you know, just to, just to uh, use some kind of uh, warm, fuzzy language to impress people, but the prayers of God's people are so important. And we can't underemphasize that. You know, I see the people who are involved in the work. We just had our uh, last uh, banquet and board meeting at Quarryville, Pennsylvania, you know, the Presbyterian mm -hmm. Retirement Home. And to see the precious saints of God who really are a part of this work, who are co-laborers. Little uh, old ladies who are widows giving, you know, from their little stipend they get on a fixed income and uh, who say, I'm praying for this work. They send me notes and tell me how they're praying for me. That just means so much. Yes. You know, to, to have that. And I knew that when I went to Pakistan this time, and I was, to tell you in the flesh, I was a little nervous about going. I, I was, there was a lot of, uh, you know, apprehension knowing the circumstances there. But I just knew that God's people were praying for me. I sensed it this time more than I ever have. Now, some might take that a bit mystical, but I, I got notes, I got letters. I knew they were, and I just mm -hmm. knew that I was compassed about with, um, 
his heavenly host, and I'd much rather die in Pakistan than get hit by a car on I-80 anyway. <laughs> so. Well, it is interesting, some of these countries that these men go to, the poverty, the disease, and the filth all around them is such that visitors there have said, you have to leave and take a good bath before you uh, feel that the smell of the place is no longer clinging to you. Maybe you don't want to hear my joke on that. Is uh, Do you want to see Pakistan? <coughs> <laughs> I just coughed some up for you. That's one of the things to pray for our people there, especially Reverend Dan. He's 65 years old. He says, I'm going to die here. God's called me here. I can't leave. And he has asthma. And I mean, the filth is constant. The air is just blue from the pollution. They have all these two-cycled vehicles, no restraint. And then you have all the dirt that's being caused by the, the hordes of people. They don't even know how many people live in Lahore in that, in that area. And, the, and it's just the worst possible conditions. Open filth, flies everywhere, disease, unimaginable. And, you know, yet he stays and labors in, in those conditions. So to think of it, to pray for him. He, he's a giant in the faith, a man of God, and uh, who, who stays there, a native Pakistani who's gone for the 25, 30 years of laboring there uh, among those people. And I think we're starting to see the fruit of that when you see Calvin Academy going six years from zero to 900 students. Mm -hmm. And the second campus, 150, and now I the privilege, as I told you in an earlier time, to cut the ribbon on a third campus. This is Calvin Christian Academy mm -hmm. in Pakistan. And see these children, I have lots of pictures I brought back, you know, as I went there and to see these little waifs that would be hopeless have this opportunity. That's just marvelous. The thing that breaks my heart is that we have to turn children away because we don't have the means. Send I can't hire more teachers. I can't build more classrooms. Send some of those pictures to Andrew to be used in your next article. Oh, I'd be glad to. Douglas, do you have a last question or a comment? Well, you were uh, uh, mentioning about the military uh, built-up or presence in in Pakistan, what's their population situation? I read recently some demographics that they estimate that uh, Pakistan will be one of the four most populous nations on the face of the earth within the next uh, half century. Well, they're growing at a great rate, but it's 140 million people. And it's not as large as us, but then again, you got to look at the land area, which is much smaller. That's like putting 140 million people in Texas, and with most of it desert. Most of the people live in the Punjab, and that we're right in the middle of it, where our ministry is, Lahore, and then in the village ministry we have with Pastor David. Which, by the way, I forgot to tell you, when I went over, I took money and we bought a van. We're going to have a Christian bookmobile yeah. to take this literature out to the Christian villages, because the Christians have to live, mm -hmm. and they don't have a way to get books. So at least their leaders can have books, the ones who can read. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, it, demographics, I mean, it's growing like wildfire. They have no restraint on how many children they have or anything like that. 
Mark, do you have a question or a comment? No. Well, Dennis, thank you for coming. Most welcome. We're very grateful to you. We do hope you will find time to write another article soon about your work and the needs of the work. God bless you, and God prosper your ministry and your family. The Lord bless you and give you another 80 some odd years. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. And good night.